0: Thank you, Brother Eddie. Others? If you have your Bibles, go ahead and turn to First Timothy chapter two. First Timothy chapter two. We completed two weeks ago chapter one. This morning we're going to be looking at verses one through seven. First Timothy chapter two. Let me read it for us. Paul writing. First of all, then, or your translation might have a therefore. First of all, then, I urge that supplications, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgivings be made for all people. For kings and all who are in high positions, that we may lead a peaceful and a quiet life, godly and dignified in every way. And an apostle. I'm telling the truth. I'm not lying. A teacher of the Gentiles in faith and in truth. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you that uh, we are people who are fed by your word. What we need more than anything else this morning is for our souls to be fed by the living and active word of God. And so we, we come as Your people submitting ourselves to Your Word, placing ourselves under Your Word and saying, Oh God, would You speak to us? Would You speak to us as a church about what it means to do church and what it means to, to, to be a church that is after the heart of God? And then Lord, would You speak to us as, as individual members about what it means to live out the Christian life? Lord, in this area, I just pray that You would bring about a real concern and desire among us, the people of God, to pray and to pray for all people and to do it diligently. Lord, I pray for that. I ask for that. I ask that You bring it about by Your Spirit. In Your name we pray. Amen. Well, Well, um, maybe one day it's going to happen where I can say... Uh, before I preach, I hope you all hear this well because I've got this one mastered and it's going to be a good one for you all. Um, that day's never come and that day is certainly not today in this text. Um, it has been a, a very tough text to prepare as I look at what it's asking for my life um and uh and and hopefully you'll do that. One I told somebody one time that preaching to me is about misery uh, loving company. Um that is uh, as you get your toe stepped on all week long in sermon preparation, you get to unload that to other people so they have to feel your burden. Um and so maybe that's what we're looking at this morning. Well, I've titled the uh, sermon when prayerful dependence met mission mindedness. When prayerful dependence met mission mindedness uh, and or mission mentality. And I did that because uh, that is uh, those are both core values of what we've been walking through on Sunday nights. Uh, We want to be a church that is prayerfully dependent, we want to be a church that has a mission mentality. And I could not imagine a text joining these together any better than this text does. So let's let's um, uh, if we move to the next slide. The way I've laid this out is, um, and it's going to get bigger later. So if you're having a little trouble seeing that, that's okay. It'll it'll get bigger. I want you to see though the outline of the passage. One of the things you have to deal with when you're dealing with an epistle, and in particular when you're dealing with a, a one by Paul is you have to try to lay out what exactly is being said here. Um, Because there's so many clauses, and then clauses underneath those, and clauses underneath those, that if you're not careful, you'll get lost as to what the main point is, what's being argued for, and then what's used as argumentation for the argument, or what's used uh, to substantiate it. There's one main point, and that's why I don't want us to get lost. There's one main point that Paul is arguing for in this passage, and that's at the very top. That is, I urge that prayers be made for all people. That's his point. I urge that prayers be made for all people. Now, to do that, he is going to then make an argument, two arguments, as to why that is, uh, and we're going to look at that. And then when we get to the last of those two arguments. He's going to give us two reasons why we should believe that one. That's the whole passage. So, one main point. There's two points underneath it and two points underneath that. And I'm going to try to walk us right through that uh, as, as we go through. So, verse 1, this will take us to our very first point there. First of all then, I urge that supplications, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgivings be made for all people. Now. One of the things your translation might have there, first of all, therefore, um, or mine has first of all, then. It's the exact same point though. The point is, he's trying to connect what he's saying to what he was saying. One of the general rules when reading the Scriptures, it's not just with the Scriptures, it's with any text. If you see a therefore, stop and ask what? What is it? Therefore. That's exactly right. Well, uh, if, if, if you see, uh, at the very end there of chapter 1, he is charging Timothy to wage the good warfare by holding his faith in good conscience. And so whatever comes next, we know that Paul considers what he's telling him now to be part of what it means to wage the good warfare. So whatever comes next in chapter 2, Paul assumes this means this to mean what it is to wage the good warfare. Now, I've got to tell you, what surprises me most, again, there's one main point of this passage, and that is, go pray for all people. What has been the biggest point, I think the biggest takeaway, is the amount of space and the priority this gets in this letter. Let me tell you why. I'll just be honest. I would imagine Paul closing the document. Here. I would imagine him closing his letter in First Timothy chapter six, and at the very end there, O Timothy, guard the deposit trusted in you, and then maybe get a comma like and pray for all people. It seems like a throwaway. Certainly go pray for all people, but it's not. Paul instead fronts it to chapter two of the of the book. He lays out, you should pray for all people, and then he is gonna, and you're gonna see, he's gonna pound with deep theological points as to why it is we should care to pray for all people. It's not a small deal. It's a huge deal to Paul. That to me has been one of the biggest takeaways personally, is to realize when I'm asked by the Scriptures, not asked, commanded by the Scriptures to pray for all people, it's not a throwaway. It's not just one of the small things. It is a big deal in my life. Or should be a big deal in my life. And it should be a big deal to us as a church. It's very important where it lands. So he says, I urge that prayers be made for all people. And then he's going to give us these four different words. Supplications, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgivings. Now, in one sense, the point is being made. Pray, 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 pray. In other words, he's not necessarily telling us to pray in all these different ways, though there's things to learn from each one of these words and we'll take a look at them. But I think instead for us to hear the emphasis being made by Paul here is you need to pray, you need to pray, you need to pray, you need to pray. And then he's going to go on and tell us exactly how it is that we need to pray. And he does. He lists for us four separate words of how to pray. The first word there is with supplications. So he urges that prayers be made for all people with supplications. So supplications should be made. This word is most often talked about in the Scriptures as prayer. But the interesting thing is it's not always. It can also just mean one asking because one has need does does not necessarily have to be asking to God. It always implies need, though, from the one who is asking. So the word itself, when you talk about to supplicate, it means you have a need and you're going to another person and saying, I need your help here. Now just back up and remember, when he's talking about prayer here, he's not just talking about any prayer. He's talking very specifically about our prayer for what? All people. That, that's what He's ask, asking. And in particular, we're going to see, He's talking about those on the outside. He wants us to pray for those who are not believers. And when He's asking us to do that, He's asking us, one of the things He says, is to pray as a in supplication, with need. This is very interesting. Realize what God is asking of us. He's asking us to put ourselves before Him And say, I have this need. What is your need, child? My need is that this other person or these other persons who are not believers, I am bringing them to you. That's the need I have. I can't do anything about them, God. But you can. Now, I don't know about your life, but for me, one of the most convicting things is that before I can feel the neediness of somebody else's life in their soul, I've got to first stop and think about somebody else's life and their soul. <laughs> that is, before I can ever get to the point of actually feeling the need for their soul, I actually have to stop and think about them. How often in our lives do we look at those around us, in particular those who are lost, And feel the neediness of their soul. And want desperately for that to be changed. So much so that we can go before God and He can say, What is your need, child? And our whole list of things that we want don't come. But instead, what comes is the neediness of this outsider. Then the next one he goes for is prayers. Those first three words, if you look at any of the other passages, passages, at times you'll see the word that here's translated supplications, you'll see it translated prayers. Other times when you, where here they've translated intercessions, at times that's translated prayers. It really trips up English translators because if you're not careful, the way, if you just translate it the way you would for any other passage, here's how you translate it. I urge you then that prayers, 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 and thanksgivings be made for all people. Well, they know they can't do that, right? So they got to come up with some other words to describe these types of prayers. They know they can at least give one of them the word prayer. This is the one they give the word prayer to. Because this is the one that is most often used for the word prayer across the New Testament. So when Jesus gives us the Lord's Prayer in Matthew chapter 6, this is going to be the word that's used. And when we're taught to pray... This is how we're, this is the word that's used. And in Revelation chapter 8, when we get the picture of the angel standing before the throne of God praying to God, this is the one that is used. It brings with it a sense of reverence and a sense of worship and a sense of anticipation of God's power. And so we are those that come, yes, feeling, having needs. That is, we bring the needs of these other souls to, our, to God, but we do it with worship and with reverence, asking that He work. And then we get this very interesting word, intercessions intercessions. He asks us to bring supplications, he asks us to bring prayers, and then he asks us to bring intercessions. Let me give you a couple of places where this word is used and you see how important it is that Paul uses it here. In Romans chapter 8 verse 26, we're given the beautiful promise that the spirit of God intercedes with groanings too deep to utter on our behalf that's that word intercedes and in hebrews 7:25 we're given the sweet truth that jesus our high priest is able to fully completely save us because he lives to make intercession for us so again just get this picture in your head it's the people of god coming with outsiders on their minds and hearts And they're going to come needy before God and saying, help, help them, God. They're going to come with reverence before God, but they're going to come with intercession. What is He after? I think what He's after there is what does it mean that the Spirit of God intercedes on your behalf? What does it mean that Jesus intercedes on my behalf before the Father? It means that Jesus identifies Himself with my need and brings that to God. That's why it's so important in Hebrews chapter 7, when he talks about our high priest, he said, how wonderful is it that we have one who can sympathize with us? Right? He intercedes. He actually empathizes and sympathizes and knows our need. Brothers and sisters, this Word of God is asking us to be so mindful of those on the outside, so mindful of those who are not believers, that we actually sympathize with their needs, that we sympathize with their uh, issues and their longings, and we bring that to God. And then lastly, he tells us to do that how? Do it with thanksgiving. Go before God... With thanksgiving for these outsiders, go before them and be thankful. Well, you can't be thankful if you don't actually believe God can work. And you can't be thankful unless you actually felt like you had a need that's now being satisfied. And the truth is you really can't be thankful or not as thankful if you haven't identified with that person's need. So that's exactly what He's after here. You go, and you go with thankfulness, and you go with empathy. So we're to pray. We're to pray with humility. We're to pray with reverence. We're to pray with urgency. We're to pray with thankfulness. All the while praying for who? This is the next major point. We're to pray for all people. We're to be those who pray for how many? All people all people So and I think this is really important to get what Paul's after in this passage. You you could miss it. If you if you misunderstand that when he says all people there, what he's what would not fulfill this is for us to do this. On your way to bed at night, say something, you know, in passing, Lord, thank you for today. Thank you for watching over us. And God bless all men everywhere. Amen. Now, that would feel like that's taking care of what Paul's asking, because you just prayed for all people everywhere, right? That's not what he's after. That, that wouldn't fulfill it. What he is saying is something more on the lines of, I want you to pray for all people because I want you to know there's not any group of people for which you should not pray. Let me say that again. I want you to pray for all people because I want you to know there is no group of people no matter their, their nation of origin, their gender, their, their race, their socioeconomic status, their political uh, 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 moorings, their, uh, their preferences, their past or present sins, none of them are excluded, should be excluded from your prayers. All of them should be brought before God. It's an urgent pleading. And when you hear that, when you hear that God says, go pray for all people, I'll be honest, I think we would hear that and think that's something that you would get at the end of a Hallmark card. And God bless all people everywhere, amen. Or something you'd see on Valentine's candy, right? Some some small little statement, romantic statement. That is not what this is after. Instead, this is an urgent pleading from the Word of God to the people of God. You need to be people of prayer for those who do not believe. And then he zeroes in a bit more. And not only are we to pray for all people, but we are to pray in particular for kings and all in high positions. Look at verse 2. For kings and all who are in high positions. We pray for all people, but in particular, we're to pray for our leaders. Just let that one swallow that and feel that. We're commanded by the Word of God, no matter what we think of our leaders, to bring them in a meaningful way before the throne of God and ask that He help them. That's what the Word of God is commanding us to do. It's so what Paul was commanding his people to do. And, and I know, I know that many of you are saying to yourself, it's just going to be really hard for me for whatever reason. I, I don't like this current administration. Maybe that's your thoughts. Look, people, this is Paul. <laughs> He's writing us either imprisoned or in between imprisonments. In Rome, imprisoned under a guy named Nero, who will in very short order chop off his head. Just get that context. And what about Nero? Let me tell you what. No matter what you think of current leaders in the United States, they look like poster boys for justice compared to Nero. I promise you. Nero, he's elected uh, in AD 54, not elected, he became emperor in AD 54 of Rome after his mommy poisoned his daddy and killed his daddy so that he could take his job at the age of 17. Now, I don't have, like Chad, I don't have a PhD in psychology, but I know this, if your mommy poisons your daddy so that you can take his job, it's going to leave a mark. And it left a mark. Let me tell you about Nero's life. He was was neurotic. He was incapable of making good decisions. He was crazy. The stories of Nero's craziness uh, give historians much to talk about. In AD 55, one year after taking over as emperor, he had his stepbrother, Britannicus, killed. In AD 59, his mother who got him his job by poisoning his daddy, he had her... Executed. In AD 62, he executed one of his wives. Later on, one of his counselors was forced to commit suicide, and there is debate as to whether he was forced because Nero made him or because Nero was so crazy he felt better dead than to counsel him. And what about Christians? Well, Nero was known to feed them to dogs, he was known to nail them to crosses. And it was said that he would take Christians and tie them on a stake and burn them in his garden to offer light so he could see his garden at night and enjoy his garden. The man was absurd, ungodly, a sick ruler. And Paul writes, to these people and says, what should you do about this man? You should pray for him. Now, I'll be honest. On one hand, I could see that coming. I could see me saying you should pray and your prayer should be something like this. God, obliterate that crazy monster, right? That seems like the prayer you would make. But no, He instead says you should pray for Him and you should pray for Him in sincerity with humility, feeling his needs, interceding, being empathizing actually with Nero and taking him before God. Now I find that incredibly, incredibly convincing and convicting. What comes next is just beautiful. So you hear all this and you go, okay, we get it. We're supposed to pray. And Paul kind of knows that if he's not careful, this is not going to be taken seriously. That people are going to go, yeah, 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 that's not that big of a deal. Tell us about the other stuff. So Paul then weights it with some real theological oomph. One of the reasons, this is unbelievable. Wait till you hear this and you tell me if this isn't helpful for us as American Christians today. He gives us two reasons why we should do what he's telling us to do. He's going to spend most of his time on reason number two. But reason number one is really helpful. That we may lead a peaceful and quiet life, godly and dignified in every way. Now make sure you understand the logic, because that's where all the the help is here. He's not just saying, go lead a peaceful and quiet life. That's not you would be missing the so that clause if you if you thought that, and you'd be misreading this passage. He's saying you go pray for people so that you might what? Lead a peaceful and quiet life. He's actually telling you, if you want to lead a peaceful and a quiet and a godly and a dignified life, you better be one that is consistently praying for people. This is really tough for us. We instead want action. We want to take action. We want to do something. We want to write somebody or protest somewhere. Let our voice be known somewhere. Tell somebody what we think. And Paul's response is good. Go let your voice be heard by the one who can do something. Namely, God. Bring them in prayer. And he says... If you do this, you will lead a peaceful and a quiet life. This is helpful. Why? Because a posture of prayer comes from a heart of faith. A posture of prayer comes from a heart of faith. Instead of American Christians running around with high anxiety over every new law that is signed, every new battle that goes on in Congress, every election, Paul is saying, would you quit the anxiety? And would you go before God? And would you pray for these people? And if nothing else happens, it will calm down your heart and you'll rest Now I don't know about you, but I know enough about American Christianity to know that we could take a real good healthy dose of that medicine. A real healthy dose of let's do a lot more praying and a whole lot more whining, a whole lot less whining and complaining. Complaining. More than we need political action committees or conservative think tanks or family task forces, we need churches on their knees, bringing leader by leader to the Father in prayer and standing on their behalf, begging for mercy that God would move in their souls and upon their hearts, not for our fiscal freedom, but for the sake of God's great name. And what would be the result? the outside world would look at the church and say they lead a quiet and a peaceful and a godly and a dignified life. The truth be told, if most people look at from the outside at American Christianity, those who are not inside of American Christianity, but those who are on the outside looking in, I'm telling you, that's not how they're going to describe us. Peaceful and quiet is not going to be the top of their adjectives. And I think I have a pretty good idea why. Because I know my own life. My own life is not characterized by nearly enough praying for the leaders around me. There's a whole lot more whining and a whole lot more grumbling and a lot more complaining than there is praying. And as a result, there's not nearly enough peace and quiet. Just relying on God. He knows what He's doing. He's going to take care. That's point number one. Do it so that you will be a quiet and a peaceful and a godly and a dignified people. And then the second reason He gives us for doing this He said, This is good and it is pleasing in the sight of God, our Savior. That's verse 3. Who desires all people to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. Okay, let me see if we can go forward one. Yeah, Um, I want to make sure before we go too far that you're still tracking the logic of what he's doing because it's really important. Verse 3 and 4 can be summed up as You do this because it pleases God who desires all to be saved. It it can be summed up this way. Do this because it pleases God who desires all to be saved. But remember, this is used as to substantiate the plea He's making. That is, He's saying, do this. I urge you that prayers be made for all people because... It pleases God who desires all to be saved. That is incredibly important. I tell you that because I'll be honest, I I for a long time misread this passage by going straight to verse 4 and not considering the full context of what it it is saying. In particular, skipping over the importance of verse 1 here. That is, if you go straight to verse 4, you'll be left to a lot of theological questions that theologians and Bible students like to sit around in seminary cafeterias hashing. And my wife would say I spent too long in those um, so I can identify too well. And these questions will be things like, does God want to save all people, but He cannot? And therefore, if He cannot, is He not really all-powerful? Or, is God really going to save all people and we just don't know? Or, and the the list continues. I I, I think those are good questions. But I think if you told Paul about this passage, that you had those questions, he's going to be perplexed. I think Paul would respond, that's not my point. That's not what I'm even talking about. Now, I'll talk about some of those things in other places, but not here. That's not my point. Well, what is his point? His point, I think, you have to make sure you connect verse 1 to verse 4 to get it. it. goes something like this. You should be praying for all people, even the ones you dislike and think are beyond the scope of God's saving power. Why? Because God's scope is much wider than you can imagine. God is committing to saving from among nations, genders, classes, and positions. And therefore, when you come praying for all sorts of people, irrespective of their nationality, gender, race, class, or position, God finds it both good and pleasing. In other words, God desires to save broadly from all types of people, in all types of groups, And that's why you should never look at any group of people and say, those are ones we don't need to pray for. Or they've made me mad, I don't want to pray for them. He's saying don't do that because God is a God who wants to save broadly among all types of people and therefore it only makes good sense for you to come praying for those people. I think this is a beautiful point given chapter 1. How did chapter 1 end? I just love this balance in Paul. Do you remember the last point that we looked at together in chapter 1 was on church discipline? It was on the need for accountability within the church of God. And it was on basically kicking some members out who were teaching a false doctrine. Oh man, you just could imagine how easy it would be for Paul to then zero in and say, And the church needs to be an exclusive club. And it needs to be filled with this type of people and, and, and that everybody wants to be part of this group of people. And then right when you think he's going there, he beelines the other way and says, the church should be an accountable group of people, but don't ever discount that our God is mighty to save anybody He wants from anywhere He wants to. That's an amazing amazing spectrum only the scriptures could hold that in balance this is a very important point to paul this reason is so important that it gives us that he gives us reasons to believe it so this reason this because it pleases god who desires all to be saved he now is going to give us two reasons we need to believe that only paul Don't worry, we'll come back, we'll put it together, but just stay with me. Listen to this, verse 5. For there is one God and there is one mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus. Incredible. (laughs) You get verse 4. Verse 4 just tells us that God wants to save all. Types of people, right? <laughs> and you can imagine a universalist, one who says, oh, everybody's going to be saved." That type of person, you'd imagine them going to this verse and going, "Yeah, yeah, 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 yeah." See? And then you go one verse later, and Paul tells us what: there is only one way for man to be saved—only <laughs> in the Scriptures. God is going and is willing to save all. But there is only one way that a man will be saved. How? Verse 5. For there is one God, there is one mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus. This is beautiful. So you've got all these people from all these diverse people groups and they all have their different gods. And yet, Paul... Says they might have all their gods, but there's how many gods? There's one God. There's only one. And if they're going to be saved, they're going to be saved by the person of Jesus Christ. That's the only way. Now, that makes good sense given his argument. And therefore, you better do what for these people who are serving other gods? You better be praying for them. He's saying, look at them and see they're lost. Look at them and see they do not know their way. Look at them and see they have an impeding judgment coming. And therefore, pray for them. I urge you, Paul says, pray for them. And do it diligently. All the balance is the perfect balance. It's the gospel balance. God is a God who saves from all sorts. And God is a God who saves only by Christ. And then... Verse 6. Watch this again. <laughs> it's great. Verse 6. Talk about Christ. He's the mediator who gave himself as a ransom. What a beautiful word. What a beautiful picture. Christ is our ransom. As a ransom for who? All! <laughs> All! Oh. Oh. How are you saved? You are only saved by the blood of Jesus Christ. But when He gave His ransom, who did He give His ransom for? Some select group? Some people who, who, who had the in with God? Not at all. He gave His ransom for all groups across the world. There's not one tribe, there's not one tongue that will not be included in heaven because Christ's blood atoned for that many. Many. Right after he tells us there's only one way to be saved, he turns around and says, and God is wildly saving across the nations. It is a beautiful balance. It is the balance that the church must strike. It is the balance of being a people who are an accountable people who love Jesus and take the Scriptures seriously and hold one another to account and love God and who are praying like crazy for the lost and the dying around them and, and do not care what those people currently believe or what they currently do. They're praying that God would save them and they're banking on the fact that God will do something like that. All because Jesus gave himself as his ransom for many. It's that amazing scene in Revelation twenty five or Revelation chapter five, where we're told it's a beautiful scene. You got twenty-four of the elders, you got four living creatures, and they're mourning because nobody can open up these scrolls, nobody can open up the seal. And then it says there there appears a lamb. And the lamb has been slain, it says. And all of heaven gets quiet. And he walks over and he picks up the seal and it says, they together sang a new song. Worthy are you to take the scroll and open the seals, for you were slain. And by your blood, listen, you purchased men for God from every tribe of language, people, and nation. Do we believe that? Do you believe that in the bank already, by the blood of Christ, is purchased the salvation for men from every tribe, language, people, and nation? We can't mess that up. All we've got to do is harvest that. And Paul says, the chief way you harvest that is you get on your knees and you ask God, bring them! Bring him. them! That, that's the picture that Paul is after. And then Paul gives one more reason why we should be excited and believe that, that yes, he's given him Uh, as a ransom for all, or that, uh, that he desires all to be saved. I like this one. I like this because Paul goes his own life and I think it's kind of funny. Verse 7. For this I was appointed a preacher. What is the for this? He's talking about the fact that God is willing to save across all types of people. For this I was appointed a preacher and an apostle. I'm telling the truth, I'm not lying. Now Paul, you you put that in there and you think, why, why, why Paul? I mean, because many people call Paul a liar. So there's a little jab going on here. I'm telling the truth, I'm not lying like so-and-so who did lie and I kicked out, right? For this, I was appointed a preacher and an apostle. A teacher of the Gentiles in faith and in truth. (laughs) Paul is one of the craziest stories of, of, of just humankind in general, of all of history. But certainly in the Scriptures. Just to, just remember where he came from. This was a guy who was persecuting not Gentiles. He didn't care about Gentiles. He wouldn't touch them. He's persecuting other Jews because he didn't think they were being Jewish enough. Namely, they were Christians. <laughs> That's what his story was when his name was Saul, Right? So he he's excited. We talked about last time. He talks about this in verse 1. He's like, "Look, I, I didn't just I wasn't just part of the team of persecuting Christians. I was a head coach. I was recruiting." And God turns his life around. And no longer is he not only not persecuting those. <laughs> he gets it. You got to imagine for Paul, this is the craziest story ever. He now is the spokesperson within the Christian life world to bring in the dogs that be us the gentiles so he goes from being ultra conservative it's got to be just this way and god brings him all the way to oh no i'm really radically saving and that's what happened to paul there is there's is this and you see it happen in acts there's this this transformation of a man who goes oh man it's not just that jesus is the messiah but god is radically saving oh man Gentiles, it doesn't matter. I mean, they never thought. It's not like Paul followed the path of the Jewish missionaries before him. Well, I think we'll head west and head on over to Asia Minor. That's just what we missionaries do. There was no need to head west if you were a Jew. You stay right here. And you wait for God to come rescue you. And the rest of the people, we know what's going to happen to them. And Paul is saying, no, 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 no. That's not what God wants to do. And later he'll argue for us is not even what he ever really wanted to do. God wants to save radically. And I'm actually even going to go to the Gentiles. So Paul is saying, look, you got to pray for these people because God is willing to save them. How do I know that? Well, if I'm wrong about that, my entire life is a waste. This is what I've given everything I have to. I've given up everything for this point. I've given it all up to believe that He is willing to save even the Gentiles. And I look at that as one Gentile Gentile. I mean, I'm a German Native American. Come on! If that ain't Gentile, there's no Gentile, right? I mean, I'm a German Native American. That's just freaky, number one. But number two, it's unbelievable. I'm a child of the King. Why? Because He wants to radically save. It makes no sense. I'll never get over it. My grandmother walking me through the story of how our people, the Native Americans up in Person County, came to know about Jesus Christ. And she said that there was a school there where these English, they, they were going to teach them English. And they thought, well, we'll use the Bible. Folks, that's just wild. That my people, would have ever come to saving knowledge of Jesus Christ, we were content in our own sin and rebellion to worship gods that were not gods. And God in His great favor came and said, I am here to radically save. And guess what? I don't know every one of your histories, but I know that most of you all have a history west enough that it's crazy that you know of Jesus Christ. The one who's not so west is east over here with Shankar and Karthi. And I love the story of my dear friend who grew up Hindu and came to saving knowledge of Jesus Christ as his Lord. So what do you do with that? Folks, if we honestly believe that, it should blow us away. And there should be a deep desire to get on our knees and pray. God, save. Do something incredible. And in particular, when we say, where do we start? We're going to start with our leaders. That's where we're going to start. Why? Because Paul tells us to. We're going to start with our leaders and we're going to pray for them and we're going to pray diligently and we're going to pray earnestly and we're going to pray consistently and we're going to say, oh God, would you please show mercy and save? There's so many points of application. I'm not going to make but about a 1% of them. But let me make this. In particular, On a personal front, are you an empathizing, mission-minded, praying person? Are you an empathizing, mission-minded, praying person? And in particular, do you pray for those who are over you? Students, this is incredibly, incredibly important for your life. Let me ask this. God is not simply commanding you to submit to authority. He is urging you to spend time praying for those who are over you. You should be praying for your parents, your teachers, your principals, your government leaders, your church leaders, and not just pray for them, but pray in the ways described in humility. Pray in sincerity. Pray with empathy. Bring them before God. And then let me ask parents, what examples are you showing on this front? How often do your children hear you complain about those who are over you versus pray for those who are over you? So would your child say, you know, I know that uh, when I hear my dad talk about his boss, it's either something really nice or it's praying for him. I mean, that's what he does 90% of the time. I mean, every once in a while there's a complaint, but most of the time when he talks about his, the people over him, he's, he's praying for him. What about us as a church? What do our children and our young adults hear from us? When it comes to government leaders and people around us. Do they hear whining, complaining? Or do they hear earnest praying? God help them. God save them. Very, very convicting point. That God is asking me, Tim Martin to stop so much whining and complaining about all the people who have control over my life and get serious about praying for them. Why? Because God may just wildly save them. And how do I know that? Because He wildly, crazily saved me. Let's pray. Father, we thank You for Your Word. It just amazes me that <laughs> how in the world could this have been penned so long ago and dial so directly in to Your people today? Only because it's the living, active Word of God. So God, I pray that You would in our hearts, in my heart, O oh God, bring about a real prayerful dependence and a longing to see You work in radical saving ways. God, I pray for us as a church that You would bring that about. Lord, I pray for us as we now turn our attention to the supper. What a great text to remind us as we feast looking backwards, at what You've done. What a great text to remind us of what it is You've done. You have wildly ransomed us when we didn't deserve it. You have saved us when we didn't deserve it. Lord, I pray that that remembrance would be on our hearts. And Lord, I pray that You would use this by Your Spirit to draw us closer to You and to sanctify our hearts. We ask these things to you, our Father, to Christ Jesus, who is the Lord, to be applied in our midst by your Spirit. Amen.